everyone. This is Denise Brown, your host of Your Caregiving Journey, a talk show that helps you as you help family members and friends. We are also part of the Caregiving Podcast Network, and we're launching a new podcast today, which is called Crucial Caregiving Conversations. On a regular basis, we're going to talk about issues that face family caregivers, what we can do about them, what we want to do about them, and oftentimes I think we're going to hopefully have some call to action, some way that you can get involved and help. Just a couple quick announcements for you before we start today's show. We announced our latest contest related to our National Caregiving Conference this week. We've launched a Family Caregiver of the Year contest. This is actually something I used to do. I started it in 1995, and I did it for, I think, maybe 10 years. And then everybody else started doing it, and they had some really great prizes. (laughs) And I didn't. I just really thought it was important to honor and recognize family caregivers. So I thought, oh, I'll let the big guns do that one. And then recently... We had a contest called Caregiving Visionary Award, and many people nominated a family caregiver. And the Visionary Award is for those who support family caregivers. So I thought, oh, my gosh, if people are nominating family caregivers, we need to also bring back the Family Caregiver of the Year Award. So if you know a great family caregiver, you can nominate them for the award. We actually choose and honor five family caregivers. I think it's important to recognize that it's not just one, it's many. And those five family caregivers will be honored at our National Caregiving Conference, which happens November 9th and 10th in Chicago. You can find out more information by going to caregiving.com and look for the headline that says, Nominate a Family Caregiver of the Year. We are raising money for our National Caregiving Respite Fund. And you can help us in a really simple way. We are selling essential oils, three oils, for 25 bucks, $5 of that purchase goes, goes toward our fund. We are raising money to help family caregivers come to our conference. And the more money we raise, the more family caregivers we can help by giving them a break. You can go to caregiving.com to find out more information about that as well. And thanks to all of you who have purchased oils and who are joining our weekly chat on caregiving.com about how you can use the oils. It's really kind of fascinating to learn all the different ways that the oils can calm us, our caries, and can keep our environment really a a comforting one for us. So thanks to all of you for supporting our fund. We appreciate it. We are hopeful for it, and we appreciate any support you can give for it. Okay, those are the updates. So joining me this morning is Warren Hebert. He's wonderful. He's a family caregiver. He and his siblings cared for their parents, and Warren also cares for his adult daughter. He's a home health nurse, nursing professor, and executive director of the Home Care Association of Louisiana. So good morning, Warren. Thanks so much for joining us today. Good morning, Denise, and I think you're wonderful, too. Thank you for the compliment. So we're going to talk today about the challenges that family caregivers face. And when I shared the idea with you, I thought, let's start with three. I think there's more than three, but let's just take a crack at three. So when you think of the top challenge facing family caregivers today, what do you think it is? Denise, I really think isolation is probably the biggest challenge. 
uh, of 45 million plus family caregivers across the country, depending on which resource you use as your number. Most of those folks are very isolated. They generally are folks that are providing care to that carry your language, um, mm-hmm. who is oftentimes aged. They are dealing with challenges that are functional and cognitive. And for the most part, they're, that, that caregiver is doing it alone. And they, they aren't aware of the resources in many cases. More importantly, they're not connected to a support system. So I think isolation is, is one of the biggest challenges. And uh, the challenge, uh, part of the isolation issue is that it leads to depression and some of the uh, f- uh, physiologic challenges that go around uh, depression because oftentimes these caregivers are folks that are, you know, 40-ish, 50-ish, 60-ish and dealing with some chronic uh, challenges, chronic illness challenges of their own. So isolation, biggest challenge, I believe. So isolation leads to loneliness. And I think it's important to acknowledge that anyone at any time in their life can be caring for a family member. If you are in your 20s and you're caring for a family member, many of your peers aren't in that same situation, which can really isolate you. If you are, oh my gosh, I think what's interesting, if you are in your 40s, you're still isolated by the experience. And if you're an older family caregiver, you're isolated simply because maybe you're not able to access all the support and resources that you could if you were younger. So it's interesting to think about isolation as a as a factor regardless of your age. And if you think about it, we live in this crowded planet. So how in the world could someone be isolated? And I think a lot of what happens during caregiving is that it can feel like it's an emotional isolation and it's an isolation because you're disconnected from what you love about your life simply because you don't have the time or the energy or the money to devote to activities, relationships, goals that you once did. So I'm curious, Warren, in your caregiving experiences, how have you felt that isolation? I like the fact that you're talking about different generations. And as we talk about isolation, you know, I think of young people who more and more are providing care today, younger people, who even though they might be around others from their age group, their ability to have the conversations and ability to open up, I think, is an area of challenge. And, you know, it's exciting to me that you're using this focus on crucial conversations. Uh, I actually have the book in my hand right now. It was on my bookshelf, and as soon as I heard you mention it, I picked it up. And the subtitle is Tools for Talking When Stakes Are High. So from the perspective of isolation, sometimes we're connected with other people but are not feeling comfortable about having the conversations related to caregiving. In my own experience, our caregiving uh, happened in a couple of ways. Uh, Certainly first, our daughter, uh, Brooke, is 27. She has Down syndrome, very highly functioning, uh, very healthy other than the fact that she she has a physique like her dad. Uh, But other than that, it's very healthy, getting ready to finish her fourth year in a university program. When Brooke was first born, We had friends who were also having children around that time, having new babies. And, you know, while we connected with them some, it began to be pretty clear as our children got older 
that that Brooks path was going to be very different from theirs. So early on, there was some isolation from that perspective. Um, I do have to confess, though, that we, we took care of that pretty quickly. Before Brooke was 10, we got pretty active in the local Down Syndrome Association. Uh, Down Syndrome is a really unique aspect of, of the family caregiver experience in that if I'm in an airport, somebody doesn't need to be wearing a name badge for me to know that they're part of our Down Syndrome family. Um, so in that perspective, isolation is a little bit different. When our family was caring for my dad, dad had dementia for seven years and was bed and chair bound in his last year. Uh, from, from that perspective, uh, our mom, who was dad's primary caregiver and, and uh, the real rock of, of his caregiving team, dealt with isolation from the perspective of her not being engaged in her usual social activities. And even when she was engaged, there was that experience that she was having with dad uh, that was very different from that that her friends were dealing with at that time. So from the perspective of isolation and our experience, I think uh, you, know, you can even be around people and still feel a degree of isolation if you're not able to have a conversation related to what you're doing. And I think isolation can happen online. Oftentimes, I feel isolated when I go to Facebook because I think, oh, my gosh, what I'm seeing is so different than what I experience in my day. I feel the disconnect. It feels isolating to me. Like I'm not out there going on spring break. I'm not out there, you know, going out to a great dinner. It's just a different experience, and so it feels isolating to me. It's interesting how the isolation can come up in different ways and at different times during the experience. It, it really is. And, and the other aspect of isolation is that even in our formal care settings, uh, we have the good fortune that family caregiving is getting a lot more airtime these days. And there are many more research projects being done around family caregiving, still not near enough, but more and more that's happening. And one of the things that's being identified is the fact that something that most of us as caregivers have known for a very long time is that when it comes to the formal aspects of caregiving, our uh, physicians, uh, hospitals, uh, home health, nursing homes, et cetera, the family caregiver is often invisible. So another aspect of isolation is the isolation one might feel when they're attending a physician visit with a family member or when they're in a hospital room with them. So that's an area that I studied in my doctoral work was the uh, ability of the formal caregiver to identify and recognize and support that person who is the family caregiver because for the most part they're sort of isolated and, and, and not viewed as the resource that they really are by the formal healthcare folks. So in my own perspective, that's another aspect of isolation that we really haven't talked about near enough. So I had a conversation with one of my members of caregiving.com the other day. She's a young family caregiver, cares for her husband. He was hospitalized, and during the hospitalization, when the physician would come in to talk about what was going on, he would always talk to the family caregiver's neighbor 
who provided her transportation because she was older <laughs> and never speak yeah. directly to the spouse who was his primary family caregiver who did amazing things for him. It was fascinating to hear her talk about it and how frustrating she, she was by that, that here she was, the one that knew she had the answers. She had the experiences that would be helpful for the doctor to know, and yet he automatically went to who's older in the room because the older one must know more, which was wrong, which was wrong. I, you know, I had an interesting conversation with a colleague yesterday about how to help healthcare professionals understand who truly is the family caregiver. <laughs> and if you think about it, yeah. It could be yeah. that everybody thinks they are, but there's one who really is. Right. Because in certain settings, everybody steps up to say, I know what's best. Listen to me. And it could be in that hospital setting that people show up who don't show up during the day, every day, and they're the ones that are, are the loudest, but they not, might not be truly the family caregiver just interesting how the family dynamics change what happens yeah denise i think i think that's an interesting area for for further uh, exploration because you know within any family the dynamics are going to be we'll, we'll be generous with our language and we so that, that in most families the dynamics are interesting um but another aspect of that family caregiver is is the cultural differences and ethnic differences uh, across um, different different groups, uh, and so so the issues around loneliness and isolation, the issues around the identification and the the, the ability to connect well with the formal caregiver folks, the the medical folks, the nursing folks, etc., uh, certainly is really important, and and I think that's an area that needs to be explored more. We need, in my opinion, uh, not only to have health professionals who are better educated around the family caregiver, but I, I think that there's low-hanging fruit there to have them to be more connected, more compassionate, more empathetic, because obviously we have so many of us that are family caregivers around the country and around the world. It's an international phenomenon. Uh, they're obviously going to be health professionals who are also family caregivers who could be articulate related to the experience. So I agree with you. I think that's uh, certainly an area we need to be talking about more and exploring more deeply. The other part of isolation can be withholding your story because of the fear around the impact of telling your story. And I think about this as it relates to the workplace. So you might hesitate to say, I have a family member who's diagnosed with a disease process. I'm actively involved in caregiving because you worry that people will then say, oh, she's too busy. I don't think that she should take on an additional responsibility or be up for a promotion or that people just won't understand and then you'll be stigmatized in the workplace. So you withhold the story, which then isolates you because you're not connected in a meaningful way with those in the workplace. And that can be hard too. One of our panel uh, discussions at our conference in November was about a, a life interrupted. And one of our panelists said, said straight out, I do not talk about caregiving at work and I have not told anybody 
about my husband's diagnosis at work except my assistant. And she feels better about it. So that's the choice that she's made. But sometimes you can feel like the choice has been made because of the culture of the company. You don't disclose. You don't talk about personal situations. It's a red mark about, around you and your career and your ambitions. So, Denise, you, you and I read things from a whole lot of different places in this conversation around the workplace um, and, and I would say particularly related to women, since they're the majority of the family caregivers, uh, is something that's been discussed. Um, Ann Tomlinson, who has daughterhood, has discussed a great deal about that. And, and I think that the real challenge that we're dealing with is that, again, that caregiver, as you said, is really hesitant to share their story. Um, you know, it, it, there are some workplaces that are extraordinary when it comes to supporting the family caregiver. There are some of us who have changed jobs because we need more flexibility. Uh, the research shows that, that the majority of family caregivers who are women are reducing their hours or not working at all. And the impact that they have, that has on them from a standpoint of isolation around career and what's meaningful to them is certainly something that deserves a great deal more discussion. But the, the economic impact is also huge in that they're not only seeing a reduced income because they're cutting back on their hours or not working, but almost more importantly is the benefits. So as a result, they're going to be in a different place when it comes to their retirement because they're losing that aspect of benefits and in a lot of cases losing their health care insurance. So, you know, it's, it's not my intent to be uh, too negative related to the family caregiving experience because it's certainly brings a great deal of, of joy and meaningfulness and fulfillment. But part of our conversation has to be what are the things that we do to address this critical uh, support system because essentially the family caregiver uh, is the glue that really holds things together. You may be more familiar with some of the research than I am, but I hear numbers between 80 and 90% of all long-term care is provided by family or informal caregivers uh, at, at no cost to that person. They're doing that gratis. So the fact that we've got 80 to 90% of all of that care being provided by families tells me we've really got to be a lot better at looking at what the dynamics are around that and how we better support the family caregiver. And really the goal is so that a family caregiver does feel that there are good moments during caregiving. If you're too stressed out, if you're too worried, if you're too frantic, those moments just aren't possible. It's just not within the reality of the experience. So if you don't have enough help, you don't have enough money, you don't have enough support, it's hard to feel that there are good moments during caregiving. It's easy to see then how that perspective shifts to, this is really the worst time of my life because there is literally not enough. And the goal is for us to figure out how do we bring enough into a family caregiver's life so that the isolation is minimized, so that the choices are there, and then the good moments bubble up and are embraced. Yeah, I really, I really like, like this part of the conversation. Uh, I've been reading The Longevity Economy, uh, actually listening to it on Audible. It's written by the head of the MIT Age Lab. And part of the conversation has to do with how 
uh, caregivers support one another. And uh, because it's primarily about aging, one of the things that he talks about is the village-to-village movement. Uh, A number of years back, you know, when I first started doing my own program, uh, Family Caregiving, I recognized in the conversations that I was having with guests that, you know, as our population is much more mobile than it was when I was growing up as a kid back in the 50s and 60s, you know, my my maternal grandparents uh, lived uh, right next door to us. So I walk out of my back door and 10 feet later, I was walking in their back door. Uh, Down the street, my paternal grandmother, who was widowed at that time, lived just 200 yards away. And I think I had my first cup of coffee with her as about a 10-year-old. And, boy, that was a really big deal for me. But the point that we're so distant today from families, um, those who have managed to get their children educated or finding that their children are living in other parts of the country or maybe across the world, uh, the fact that the family dynamic has really changed today means that that degree of isolation is a real challenge. So I bring that back to the conversation around the village-to-village movement and the fact that essentially what we're doing is almost finding surrogate family. So in our own neighborhood that I live in, there are about 400 homes. And last night we had the neighborhood monthly gathering where we all go out to dinner somewhere. And I'm looking around the table, and there may be you know, two people at the table who are under the age of 60. So, you know, those issues related to the fact that as uh, chronic illnesses exist, as we uh, have heart disease and cancer as two of the major, major leading causes of illness and death, uh, at, at any given moment, any of those folks, 30 folks I was sitting around the table with last night, could find themselves in a situation where they need, and without exception, just about everybody at that table, family members were not living nearby. So, you know, I think that's part of the challenge, too, related to isolation, is how do we find a way to support one another? As you said a little bit earlier, how do we find a way to embrace our story, you know, learn to turn it into the proverbial elevator speech so that we can get through it in a way that just introduces it to people and introduces it to conversation and give ourselves permission to to share, um, you know, certainly the challenging parts but also to make sure that part of our story is what brings us joy. Part of the story has to be what brings us meaning, uh, because the research has shown that those that find meaning in the experience are far more resilient than the ones who are seeing it, as you indicated a little bit earlier, as, as, as the worst time of their life, uh, because there is joy there. I have been thinking about the dementia-friendly cities movement, and one of our communities here in northern Illinois is is working on that. The local area agency on aging has received funding to help a community be dementia-friendly. Of course, the next thought is, what would be a caregiving-friendly community? And I feel like I'm introducing a big topic, so maybe that's what we'll talk about next month. I just wonder, what does that look like? So I'm going to throw that out to you, Warren, and tell you that I think that's our topic for next month. What does a caregiving-friendly community look like? And when I think about community, I think of workplaces. I think of our neighborhoods. I think of our houses of worship. I also think about, like, our park districts, our stores. 
So let's talk about that next month, if that's okay with you. I like that, and my wheels are already turning related okay, to yeah, yeah, re- re- related to the importance of trust. Related to the yeah. importance of trust, because because we at some point have to uh, be vulnerable enough to tell that story, and uh, right. and for our communities to accept us, they've got to be ready to hear the story, and give us the opportunity to to tell chew on it together. One of the things that I've been doing for the past year is asking family caregivers to complete a very simple survey about their stress. They, they pick a number from one to five that indicates how stressed they are. They tell me why they're stressed, so they have a series of choices, and then they write in what their experience has been around stress. So the stress level has always been around 4.16. The reason that the stress remains constant in the family caregiver's life is because they miss their life. They are disconnected. For what, from what's important to them. And then they share the specifics of their situation. And I presented this information last week to Loyola University's School of Social Work students who are focused on gerontology. And I hadn't looked at this research for a few months. And when I went back and revisited with the students, the impact of the stories that family caregivers share in this survey was visible on the face of the students. Because family caregivers Mm -hmm. in the survey will share these stories that are just so heartbreaking. I care for my parents. My brother helped me until he died. So there are situations in life that make caregiving harder. I recently, one of the other stories that was very heartbreaking to read was, I recently got married. We built a new life. We had a new home. We had a new future. Three weeks after our wedding, he had a significant stroke. That changes life. Life changes in such a drastic way that I think it's important for us to be kind to each other. I guess that's where I'm going. Because when you think about what people go through in their life, we don't see what's behind the brick, the brick walls of their houses. We don't see what happens inside the home, what people are managing and dealing with and coping with. And I think one of the ways that we can help family caregivers is just be kind in our world because we could accidentally be kind to a family caregiver that we just saw as a stranger, but who as a family caregiver was appreciative of what we did for them just by being kind. What do you think of that? I just love this conversation. I'm excited that you connected with Loyola there in Chicago since I'm on faculty at Loyola in New Orleans in the School of Nursing, it, it would be fun to have a conversation sometime about this. Your conversation about being kind uh, takes me back to a researcher uh, by the name of Leo Boscaglia. Uh, Leo Boscaglia did a lot of work mm. on love. And, and without going into a whole lot of detail, because it would take a show all its own, one of the things that I remember, and I couldn't have been more than 15 or 16 walking into my house after my uh, junior year of high school, and he was on TV, and he, he, he offered this message that I think is important for family caregivers and anyone who knows family caregivers, is we have a choice when we engage somebody, and usually there are three choices. Number one, you, you, you either don't really engage and you just keep going your way, and that happens because the world's population is pretty big and we're around a lot of people and you can't pay attention to everybody. The other thing is, is if you have a negative experience, you can essentially act on that in a way 
that could inflict some pain. Uh, for example, you know, who, who hasn't been out eating at a restaurant and had some negative experience with a waiter or a waitress? Uh, well, you've got a couple of choices there. You can, you can kind of ignore it and think maybe, you know, they're having a challenging time where you can say something that might be hurtful. The third choice that Pascalia offered related to your comment about being kind is to engage that person. Find something positive to say. Find something to compliment them for. And that sort of thing, I think, when it comes to being kind, fits in with your concept of the caregiver-friendly communities. Uh, you know, my daughter, Brooke, is a great example. Uh, my wife says Brooke is, is unedited. And what that means for us is that pretty much what you see is what you get. I mean, she doesn't have all these layers of veneer that most of the rest of us put on to try to protect ourselves. She is who she is. And Brooke has a compliment for anybody and everybody. As soon as she meets, introduces herself, it's either nice hair, you know, you got a pretty dress, I like your boots. Uh, so, so when it comes to our being kind to one another, I really like that idea. And I think that that can certainly be one of the big, big questions for family caregiving friendly communities is how, how, how are we going to act on being more kind uh, to one another on the off chance that you might be running across a family caregiver? Yeah, who just received devastating news or is caring for yes. someone at the end of life. We just don't know what's going on in someone's life, and so why not just choose kindness? Why not? Yes. Okay, Warren, this was great. So, Warren, for our viewers who would be interested in your radio show, which happens every week, I believe, is that correct? It does. Yes. Okay. How can they how can they be, become one of your listeners? www.radiomaria.us. <clears throat> www.radiomaria.us. And if you Google uh, Warren Abair, that's spelled Hebert. Uh, we're here in French Louisiana. Warren Abair, and then plug in the word family caregiving, and it'll lead you to the program, but also lead you to archives of past programs. Okay, great. And we have our topic for next month. Our podcast around crucial caregiving conversations happens on the last Friday of every month at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. And Warren and I are going to be talking about what's a caregiving-friendly community. Thanks, Warren, so much. Have a great weekend. Thank you, Denise. Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody, so much for listening. I'm Denise Brown. Be sure to stop by caregiving.com. Let us know how you're doing because we do always love to know. Take care. Bye-bye.